0: Welcome to Hope, everybody. My name is Eli Sutterth. I'm the discipleship minister here at our uh, Ankeny campus, and I want you to think about your very first job. What was the first job you had, maybe an after-school thing or a summer part-time, whatever it was. In fact, turn to the person sitting next to you and just share in a couple of seconds what was your first job, what was it, where was it, things like that. Go ahead and share with each other. Probably a lot of fun stories, bringing back memories, maybe some of you are there right now. I remember my first job, so when I was younger I I mowed a lot of lawns and I helped out at a farm and stuff like that, part-time things, but my first real job when I was 14, I was a bagger, I bagged groceries at the Hy-Vee in Iowa City, that was my first job. So uh, I I remember my first day really well. I remember my orientation. It wasn't quite that severe. But my first day, I was really excited. You know, it was my first. I was saving up to buy my first car. They made us wear ties. I had my tie on, my name badge. Zero years of service, but I was going to work on that. And, And I was ready to go. Now, it wasn't unusual for managers to tell us to do other things, mop the floor, stock shelves, things like that. And I don't know if, if you work in a grocery store, you might know if it's a thing, but my store had kind of a hazing ritual for us new 14-year-old gullible, naive kids who started working. The manager pulled me aside when there was a little bit of a lull, and he said, I've got a job I need you to do, and he takes me to the salad dressing aisle. And he, and he says, Eli, part of your responsibilities here at hy V is to make sure all of the salad dressing bottles stay well shaken up. And he, he, he pulled one off the shelf, and he even showed me. He was like, you see all the stuff, it settled at the bottom, and you need to shake it up every so often, because this isn't good, it doesn't look good. I was a little bit suspicious, but again, I'm 14, and I want to be impressive, I want to do a good job, so he leaves, and I start shaking up these salad dressing bottles, and, and I was there for a while, I got a good system going, two hands, and kind of switching back and forth, and... Um, feeling okay about it, until I started to see other people in the store, you know, other colleagues or people working at hy V sort of just walking past the aisle, checking it out, and then they'd walk on. And it didn't get really suspicious until, you know, like the whole bakery department walked by, and, and then they kept going. And then uh, there was an, some of the accountants from upstairs were just kind of walking by and checking it out. I realized it's actually nobody's job to shake up the salad dressing bottles in the grocery store. That's not a real thing. It's funny. We had a good laugh about it. I wonder about your job today, your job right now, if it might feel like that from time to time. You know, if you feel like your, your day-to-day routine at work is, is shaking up salad dressing bottles. You know, there's, there's, some, there's some routine, there's some repetition, maybe it's mundane, and the, the end of the project means you're going to start it all over again. And you're wondering about your work life. Is it something that's worth doing? Am I I actually being productive? Am Am I contributing in any meaningful way? Is this something that I want to keep doing? And you wonder if there's any value to the work that you're doing right now. We're in the middle of a sermon series we started a few weeks ago called Hope for Iowa. We've been exploring the different spheres of our lives. So the areas we spend a lot of time in and what the Bible has to say about where we spend that time. So we looked at hope for our schools a few weeks ago, what the Bible has to say about our our life at school and education. We looked at hope for our cities, our neighborhoods, and this week we're looking at hope for our work. What does the Bible have to say about our work lives? And hopefully it says a lot because by the end of your life, on average as an adult, you will have spent 92,000 hours at work. 21% of your waking time will be spent at your job. And so we hope that the Bible says a lot about that sphere of our life that's really important to us. It's actually one of the, you know, the first question that you ask somebody you meet for the first time. Hi, I'm Eli. What's your name? What do you do for work? It tells us something about the other person. Our scripture reading for today does say something about work, but it says it in kind of an unusual way. So if you've got your Bible, you can open to the book of Ecclesiastes. That's where we'll be spending some time. It's right in the middle. Um, and, and it's this little book tucked into the middle of the Old Testament. So just after Psalms and Proverbs, there's Ecclesiastes, before you hits Song of Songs and Isaiah. It's just 12 chapters. And, and this is what it said in our Bible reading today, Ecclesiastes 5.18. Even so, I have noticed one thing at least that is good. It is good for people to eat, drink, and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life God has given them and to accept their lot in life. Now, I don't know about you, but to me this sounds like the Bible's just telling us to suck it up. Doesn't it sound like that? Just just get over it. Accept it. Don't worry about it too much. I don't know how much you've interacted with scripture. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard the Bible read out loud. If that's the case, I'm sorry. Ecclesiastes is an odd book of the Bible. There's actually nothing like it in Scripture. It's, it's unique as, as a part of the word, the word Bible in English. We get that word from Greek, biblos, which means a library. The Bible has all kinds of different books in it. There's books of history. There's books of songs. There's letters. There's stories. Ecclesiastes is, is a unique book, but it's actually not unique to the period in time when it was written, a style of literature that was familiar to that area. Ecclesiastes was written about 200 years before the life of Jesus, and the original manuscripts use a form of Hebrew that was uh, common to the northern part of Israel just after the Persian exile. And the reason those bits of information are important is because commonly people think that Ecclesiastes was actually written by King Solomon. In the second verse of the whole book, it says, these are the words of the teacher. It's an, a Hebrew word, kohelet, meaning a teacher or a preacher. And then it says, the son of, king, of, of David the king. And Solomon was King David's son, but actually any king after David would have been considered a son of David. Actually, what's happening here in this style of literature, common to the area at the time, it's a style known as pessimism literature. Pessimism literature was a way of writing down uh, philosophy that used contradictions to make its point. So the book of Ecclesiastes is actually using Solomon as a character. This famous Israelite king who was considered to be the wisest of all, but had a very troubled life in his relationship with God, and it it uses that as a character study to explore some pieces of wisdom and philosophy. Pessimism literature wants to make a point, you know, and the point of Ecclesiastes is what's the meaning of life? But it's really hard to, to, to break down the meaning of life by saying this is what it means, Instead, pessimism uses contradictions and it uses negativity. It uses uh, these seemingly pessimistic, nihilistic statements to get us to see how silly the opposite of the meaning of life really is. And and, and stick with me because this is important. So there are some some other examples from Ecclesiastes that we'll see that kind of call this out. Everything is completely meaningless. Well, that's not actually true. I don't think everything is completely meaningless. Since I will end up the same as the fool, which means dead... What's the value of all my wisdom? Well, we actually know that there's tremendous value there. Nothing is better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. I don't think that's quite right. History repeats itself. It has all been done before, and nothing under the sun is truly new. It's a famous phrase from Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. I think the one parallel we have to this that's even close is the book of Jonah in the Bible. If you remember the book of Jonah, Jonah is a prophet, and God tells him, you need to go tell the people of Nineveh, to repent, to change their ways, to stop doing what they're doing, because I will destroy them if they don't. They are living a corrupted life. Now, Jonah didn't like the people of Nineveh, and he would have been fine if they were destroyed, so he sails in the opposite direction. God sends the fish, eats him. Jonah finally says, Three days later, all right, fine, I'll go. The fish spits him up on the shores of Nineveh. He goes into the city, he preaches to them, and, and to his great surprise, they all repent. The king of Nineveh and all the people of that country repent. They change their ways. They stop living the corrupted life that they're living, and God forgives them. He spares that whole, that whole nation. Sounds like a happy ending. The ending of the book of Jonah is Jonah sitting on a cliffside overlooking Nineveh, crying and cursing God for having forgiven all those sinners. And that's how the book ends. And the point of the book of Jonah mostly is that God forgives you. God will forgive you no matter where you are and what you're doing. If you ask for forgiveness, God will forgive you. But also don't be like Jonah. It's kind of the point of the book. Don't be like that. Don't lament God's work in the world, especially his forgiveness of people you may not agree with. And so Ecclesiastes is similar. It's saying, this, be careful about this way of thinking that this way of thinking may only get you so far. And there's a clue to this uh, in the way the book is actually structured. So there's actually two voices speaking in the book of Ecclesiastes. The the person changes. So in the prologue, there's a narrator, and he's using the the teacher in the third person. He's he's saying this is what he thinks, the teacher thinks. He's, He's about to say all of this. And then the teacher, Kohelet, chimes in and he says, I think these things, I believe these things, that we're all going to die one day and we should just suck it up and get on with it. And then the epilogue, the, the narrator chimes back in and he said, he said all of this. You heard him say these things. He had some wisdom. He had some nice things to say. Some of it was okay, but he actually largely missed the point. He, he kind of misses the point of the meaning of life. This is what the, the narrator says at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12. But my child, let me give you some further advice. Let me have the last word. Be careful. Be careful about what you just heard. For writing books is endless and much study wears you out. School just started, maybe you already feel that way. He's saying this this teacher, even though he had some wise things to say, has largely outthought the meaning of life. And and this phrase that he keeps using, there's nothing new under the sun, what what the narrator is saying is that that view is is too low. If you're only looking for meaning in life from what's under the sun, from a human perspective, you're never going to find it. The world is going to seem meaningless. Your work is going to seem monotonous if you're trying to find meaning in it just from the human perspective. If all you're looking at is the world under the sun, you might need to lift your eyes higher and see things the way God sees them. There's a a commentator, Tremper Longman, who writes about Ecclesiastes from a scholarly point of view. He says his perspective, meaning the, the Ecclesiastes writer, when I say writer, what we, say, what we mean is the, the person God inspired to write Ecclesiastes. His perspective on the world and life is restricted. He describes it as life under the sun. That is apart from heavenly realities, apart from God. This person only saw life as what was right in front of us. The human point of view, the human perspective. But those of us who believe in Jesus, we believe there's more. We believe that God has a point of view that we don't get to see sometimes. That God sees things from his perspective And for us to find true meaning and value in the things that we do in this world, we need to look at it from the way that he sees things, not just what we see under the sun. The clip we watched earlier is from a movie called The Hudsucker Proxy. Uh, It was made in the early 90s. Uh, Tim Robbins, the actor, plays Norville Barnes, who's the main character. And Norville is just out of college. He's excited to have his first job, uh, and he gets an entry-level position in the mail room of the Hudsucker Corporation but he's ambitious, he's got these ideas, he thinks he's not going to stay there forever, uh, and one day he actually gets to present his idea, his invention, to the board of directors, this great idea that he thinks is going to revolutionize their industry. And we're going to watch this presentation that he gives to the board, but I, wanna pa- I want you to pay special attention to the types of questions that the board members ask him about his invention. Let's take a look. It has
1: economy, simplicity, low production costs, potential for mass appeal, and all that spells out great profitability. I had the boys down at R&D throw together this little prototype so that our discussion here could have some focus. And to give you gentlemen of the board a firsthand look at just how exciting this gizmo is. It's fun, it's healthy, it's good exercise, the kids will just love it, and we put a little sand inside to make the experience more pleasant. But the great part is we don't have to charge an arm and a leg. What if you tire before it's done? Does it have rules? Can more than one play? What makes you think it's a game? Is it a game? Will it break? It better break eventually. Is there an object? What if you tire before it's done? Does it come with batteries? Could we charge extra for them? Is it safe for toddlers? How do you know when you're finished? How do you make it stop? And is that a boy's model? And can a parent assemble it? What if you tire before it's done? Is there a larger model for the obese? <laughs> it's uh... genius. It's just exactly what Hudsucker industry needs at this juncture. Sure, sure. Even a blind man can tell you there'll be an enormous demand for this, uh, this. Congratulations, kid. You've outdone yourself. You've reinvented the wheel. I'm going to recommend to the board that we proceed immediately and that the, uh, that the, uh, dingus be mass-produced with all deliberate speed.
0: Okay, now I can't do this. Um, I tried earlier, My, our production director and I, we, we practiced yesterday to see if we could. Put, we can't do it, just can't. But Hope Kids is actually on a break today for the holidays. so I think there might be some professionals in our crowd who would want to come up and maybe help me with this. We want to have a 30-second hula hoop contest, so I need kids of any age to come on up. Come on up with me, grab a hula hoop, come on up here. Yep, awesome. We got a couple of different sizes, so just grab one. Grab whichever one you want. All right, take one, spread out a little bit too. What do we got, there you go, perfect size for you, that's great, yep, come on up, we'll make sure everyone gets one, cool. We have a lot of hula hoops in the building for some reason. Here's a little one, there you go. All right, we might have to share too, so spread out, go ahead and go all the way down the stage, it's fine, wherever you can find room, perfect, here's one more, all right, we're gonna share too, so trade off a little bit. All right, cool, we're gonna put 30 seconds up on the clock, let's hear it for our for our kids helping us out today, let's do it, all right, hula hoop, here we go. All right, we have plenty of room. (laughs) You can do it really well. Yeah, see, that's impressive. I can't do this at all. That's great. Who's still going? Who wants to take a turn? Awesome. Yeah, see, this is just unreal. I can't believe this. We're doing great. (laughs) I can only do my arm. Can you try your arm? This is funny. (laughs) All right, two, one. All right, here we go. Way to go, everybody. Thank you. You can just leave them where they are. Thanks so much. you did going to do great. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. You can go ahead and go back to your seats. Good job. Perfect. Stacked them up. You guys know how to clean up the room. That's great. Thank you. Now, I wonder if while, if while our kids were doing that, if they, while they were hula hooping, if they were considering the practicality of the activity, you know, the bottom line. Is this really worth my time? Um, you know, it's kind of repetitive. It's just going around in a circle. It doesn't mean much. There are other people who do it way better. I've seen videos online of people with hula hoops on every appendage. And, you know, I can only do one, or, so why should I even bother? Is that what people consider when, when, when the kids are doing this? Or are they maybe not? I hope not. I hope that's not what they're thinking about. Hopefully they're just elevated, taken up into the experience that they're not considering things under the sun, they're not considering the human perspective of the activity, they're, 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 they're swept up in the activity. Jesus teaches into this, this way of thinking uh, later on in the Gospels. When Jesus is preaching a, a famous sermon on the mountain, Matthew chapter 6, he's talking about his kingdom and the way that, that he views the world, the way that God sees things. What is heaven's perspective if that's what we're supposed to have? So in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching this parable on the next slide and he says this, "'Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. "'They don't work or make their clothing, "'yet Solomon in all his glory "'was not dressed as beautifully as they are. "'And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers, "'he will certainly care for you.'" So Jesus asks us to consider the lilies of the field, so let's consider them, what are they? Well, they're they're virtually nothing. They're worthless from a human perspective, Under the sun, they don't don't contribute. We can't eat them. They don't produce food. You can't build anything out of them. You know, lilies of the field aren't even lilies of the garden. Nobody planted these. No one is using them as a hobby. They're just out there on their own. They They might grow and die a thousand times before anybody just takes notice that they're there at all and maybe appreciates them for how good they look. But other than that, they are virtually worthless under the sun from a human perspective. But God says he cares about them. God says from his point of view, they're important. And then he says, how much more important are you and the things that you do in your life? I think if we were to look around at the world around us and and, and take notice of all the things that don't really have a practical purpose under the sun, this world might look a lot different if those things weren't there. The purpose of the things that we think are important, but that God says, I'm including those in the world. I'm making sure that this place isn't just a place of practicality, it's a place of beauty. Is a place where things are appreciated for what they are, what, how God made them. That God certainly will care for you. And, and, and the Bible is clear over and over again that God does care about what we're doing in this world. God cares about what you're up to individually. He sees you and what you're doing, and he cares. Later on in the book of Matthew, Jesus is continuing to teach on this idea of the kingdom, his kingdom and what it looks like. So in the lilies of the field, he's saying, seek first the kingdom of God, all of your provisions, the things that you need to survive, God will provide for you if you seek his kingdom. In Matthew 25, he's talking about what this kingdom will look like. What is the nature of God's kingdom? And he does it by telling, again, a story. He tells a parable about a landowner who's going on a long journey, and he leaves his property in, charge of, in the charge of three of his servants. And and he says, each according to the servant's ability, he gives them certain shares of his property. So to one servant, it says he gives 10, the Bible uses the word talents, shares of his property. To the other servant, he gives five shares, and to the other servant, he gives one share. Again, each according to his ability. The landowner said, you could have more, you could have some, and you could have less. And then he goes on his journey, and when he comes back, he asks them, what have you done with the things that I gave you? What did you do? with the things that I left you with, the talents that, I, that I, I left. The first two servants come to him and they say, we have invested what you gave us, we have worked hard with it, and we have doubled your return. You have twice what you gave us, and here is your return. And the master says this, well done, good and faithful servant. He goes on to say, you have been faithful with a few things, and now I'll put you in charge of much more. You see, God has given each and every one of us Something something to use in this world for his kingdom purposes. And it could, be, it could be something like 10 talents, 5, 1, whatever it is. God has given you something, and, and the expectation is there that you would return on it, that you would do something with it. That's the kingdom of God, that we wouldn't just hide whatever it is that we have. So that he goes to the last servant who was given one talent, and he says, what did you do with the, time, with the, with the resources that I gave you? And the servant said, well, I was afraid of you. I was afraid of the type of person you are. I I was afraid that if I risked what you'd given me and lost it, if it didn't work out, that you'd be angry with me, so I hid it in the ground. But here, you've got what was yours. And the the landowner said, you wicked and lazy servant. I will take what little you had and give it to somebody who's actually going to do something with it. And that might sound harsh, but, but in reality, this is incredibly hopeful from Jesus to say that God sees what we're doing in this world. He's given you something to do. And he wants to see what you're going to make of it. That God has a perspective on your life that whatever it is that you've got, God wants to see what you're going to do. My, my favorite character in that whole story is actually the servant who was given five talents, five shares of property. Because that servant didn't look at his friend who had ten, and he said, why did you get more? Why, why, did, why was I only entrusted with five? Fi- why did you get more than me? He didn't do that. He kept his head down and he, he took what was given to him and he made something from it. He doubled what he had without comparing himself to anybody else. And that's what we do often in this life. We look at what other people have. What, what are your skills? In a, I wish I was more like that over there. I wish I could do that. What I'm doing is not satisfying to me. I don't like where I'm at. I want to do that, that thing. When I was in college, one of my jobs, I worked construction in the summertime and a little bit during the year, and uh, I wanted so bad to be good at or I wanted to be good at it. I really did. I wanted to work with my hands. I thought it'd be great. I was terrible. Just awful. It, it was astonishing to the other people who work with me how bad I was at construction work. I just wanted to be good at it. and I still kind of do. I look at people who can build houses and work with their hands, and I wish I could do that. From time to time, I still think that I wish I could do that, but I can't. It doesn't do me any good to wish I, all that would happen is the world would be filled with bad houses and I would have done nothing with what I'm actually supposed to do. And what is that for you? Where do you look around in the world and say, I wish I could do that. I don't like what I'm doing now. And this isn't to talk about ambition and, and, and growth throughout life. There, there's plenty of process in that. But, but the dissatisfaction that comes from where you are right now, that's, that's the thing in Ecclesiastes that he's telling us to be careful about. Are you looking down on what God has given you? Are, are you ashamed of what talents he's given you and you're trying to bury them in the ground? Or are you applying them, doing something with them? Because even if it's a, a little bit today, the hope from this passage is, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of more later. There's even hope for the future of this life now. That if we're faithful today, what will God entrust with us later on in this life? And that's the, heaven, that's the heavenly perspective of the worth of your work the worth of what God has you doing in this world. And if we're to take that elevated view of how does God see our work as valuable, as important, we should also take the long view. We should look to see how far out does this actually extend? Is it just my life? Is it just under the sun? Or is there something even beyond that? Last week when Pastor Scott was preaching, we opened up to Revelation chapter 21, which is a picture, uh, an illustration of what heaven might be like, will be like one day. And in Revelation 21, We heard Pastor Scott preach about how it will be a great city, reconciled, that all of our frustrations and our fighting and our prejudices will be gone. We'll live together in the city of God. And then it continues past where we we left off last week in verse 26. 25 says its gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there is no night there and all the nations will bring their glory and honor their treasures into the city. that that part of the heavenly city will actually be representations of what our cultures produce in this world. Isn't that amazing? That, That God so values what you will do in this life that it actually will get to be a part of the kingdom of God one day. That we will get to stand in front of Jesus and say, this is what I did with what you gave me. And to hear him say to you at the end of everything, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with what I gave you. You did something with the time and the talent and the ability that I gave you. You didn't look at other people and wish you were something different. You were who I made you, who I cared for, who I love, and you did something. And God, I'm excited to be able to to see the look on God's face and to say, this is what I did. And for him to look at you as an individual and to recognize that you did exactly what he wanted you to do. We're going to watch one more clip, uh, this time from a movie called The Prince of Egypt, uh, and it's an animated retelling of, of the life of Moses. And it's actually a little bit of a sneak peek. Our next sermon series in a couple of weeks is going to talk about Moses' life. We'll be studying the book of Exodus for a while. And this is a point in the story of Moses' life when he's asking some of these same questions. Is my life valuable anymore? Is it worth anything? He, he had been this, this prince of Egypt, this great ruler of the greatest culture of his day. And overnight, he's cast out, exiled into the desert... Wondering if all that he lost and, and what he is now is worth anything, valuable at all. And his father in law, Jethro, has some words of advice for him. Let's go ahead and watch. My
1: children, let us give thanks for this bountiful food. And let us also give thanks for the presence of this brave young man whom we honor here tonight. I wish you wouldn't I've done nothing in my life worth honoring First you rescue Zipporah from Egypt then you defend my younger daughters from brigands. You think that is nothing? It seems you do not know what is worthy of honor A single thread in a tapestry though its color brightly shine Can never see its purpose In the pattern of the grand design And the stone that sits on the very top Of the mountain's mighty face Does it think it's more important Than the stones that form the base? So how can you see what your life is worth? Or where your value lies? You can never see through the eyes of man You must look at your life Look at your life through heaven's eyes And is less than a cool, fresh spring. And to one lost sheep, a shepherd boy is greater than the richest king. If a man lose everything he owns, has he truly lost his worth? Or is it the beginning of a new and brighter birth? So how do you measure the worth of a man in wealth or strength or size? And how much he gained, or how much he gained? The answer will come. The answer will come to him who tries to look at his light through heaven's eyes. And that's why we share all we have with you, though there's little to be found. When all you've got is nothing, there's a lot to go around. Oh, like can escape being blown about by the winds of change and chance, and no, you never know all the steps. Dance with me. No, you, I, must I, no, no. dance. <laughs> you must learn to join the dance. You must learn to join the dance.
0: one of the examples that shows us this in a really illustrative way is the life of Jesus himself. If you were to look at Jesus's life just from under the sun, from a human perspective, what would you see? You would see someone who by his own admission was homeless, was poor. He was born in in a nowhere part of the world he lived in. He was an apprentice of a carpenter, but it doesn't seem like he ever did anything with that. He was a, a leader of a religious movement that, that dismissed him, that cast him out, that he wasn't part of the in crowd, and he died as a criminal in his early 30s. And that is Jesus' life under the sun. But if we take heaven's perspective, if we look at Jesus' life through God's eyes, as we, we have to do, we look at what he has accomplished for all of eternity. God says, This is my son in whom I am well pleased, and the work that he has done has eternal resonance, touches our lives today, forgives us of our sins works for all of eternity in his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. And that's the view of Jesus' life eternally, the way God sees things.